please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Hello and welcome to Morning Espresso. My name is Carlo Fascinati and I'll be your moderator today. The concept of our webinar is very simple. Every week I invite a special guest to discuss topics that matter most to you. But before we begin, just some information for you. At the bottom of the screen, we have a Q&A function. You can ask questions throughout the webinar or of course you can send us an email at nordeafunds at nordea.com. After the webinar, we also invite you to reach out to your sales representative should you have further questions. In addition, we're pleased to announce that we have simultaneous live translation in German and Spanish. You'll find the interpretation button at the bottom of your screen. But before we get to our special guest, as always, we will speak to Nordea Asset Management Senior Macro Strategist, Sebastian Gailey. Good morning, Sebastian. Good morning. So Sebastian, it's been a very uh, busy week uh, for macroeconomic news. Yesterday we saw uh, some good numbers come out of the US for retail sales, so maybe a good post-COVID bounce there. But I would like to sl uh, start today with, with the following slide on, on world PMIs. So when we look at this, Sebastian, can you walk us through what, what is the current situation? Sometimes it's worth it to basically take a step back and look at what's happening. And what's happened is uh, that the global economy has suffered a severe demand and supply shock, which is more severe in some places, such as the United Kingdom or the United States, less so in the Eurozone. And a shock, as you can see with the light blue line, which is far more acute in services, which are so important for developed economy, relative to manufacturing, which are more important for uh, emerging market economies, such as uh, China. That, of course, creates a deflationary shocks, it compresses profit margins, and we saw uh, what you call value stocks and uh, cyclical stock come under very sharp pressure before rebounding with hopes of uh, an economic rebound. We saw, of course, very good retail sales in the United States, which is quite encouraging. In this environment, large companies such as the Wall Street Journal pointing out that they will take advantage of the situation with a better balance sheet to grow into new markets, get bigger market share to create oligopolies, uh, and, and therefore can uh, be a great opportunity on the growth stock, of course. In such an environment where structural growth and cyclical growth is uh, so reduced and so low, you can expect that some people believe that the world is either me or you, so no cooperation, and therefore political frictions to be quite significant. And, and that is quite quite interesting, Sebastian. It brings me to my, to my next question for you. Uh, equities have been more volatile recently. Uh, do you think it's now time to reduce risks? No. Uh, what we believe is that we're into the third wave of the recovery rally post-COVID-19, uh, that it will become a much more complex environment uh, after that, which requires a significant amount of flexibility with automated as well as uh, driven by portfolio managers, and that the data is actually in the emerging markets sometimes better than what you think. The Chinese data has been somewhat disappointing on the headline. The high-frequency data, on the contrary, is actually quite uh, positive. So it's a good story, but it is the last phase of a process. And then things may get more complicated. It probably lasts a few weeks, maybe one or two months. 
And, and Sebastian, a few weeks ago, we started to discuss, you know, the, the, the announced package, Rescue EU package. Uh, so obviously here we, well, we put a slide, we'll put a slide up of, of uh, with the, who could maybe be the savior of, of Europe. We have uh, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel. What do you think? Will Germany be able to, to pull this through? What, what is your thoughts? I should remove my German accent, but uh, Angela Merkel has uh, basically inspired confidence uh, in her leadership. She's there to cement um, her legacy, which which means she's doing what she can in the best way that she can, and she has been doing by uh, um, all agreement a, a very good job. A big fiscal package uh, out of the. Uh, Germany, more that came afterwards, proposition for seven, 500 billion with France, which then it was increased by the EU Commission to 750 billion, will be likely whittled down, probably down to six to 500 billion. But overall, very good. You add to that very strong automatic stabilizers in the Eurozone and in Europe, and you have a good European story. Of course, there are some issues, and this is where portfolio managers makes the entire difference and where, for example, we're prudent relative to Italy. One is they are going to be helped, but the pace of reform is way too slow, and we expect basically this pressure to reform to increase uh, significantly over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. Italy cannot survive with 0.5% growth over the long term. Aging problem, structural problem, massive issues. Nonetheless, the, the broad European story is, uh, is a very interesting one. Okay, thank you, Sebastian. So now we can go, as always, uh, for the viewers who are not familiar with uh, Morning Espresso, we always have the key macro takeaways, so we will share that. And as always, Sebastian, please feel free to jump in and add any uh, other commentary if, if, if you'd like. Uh, so first point that you've made this morning, asset allocation, looking beyond the, the noise. So what are implications for our, our viewers? Well, we continue to expect an overshoot uh, in equities uh, above previous highs, and we will consider adding more flexible solutions. Yeah, I, th I think this is quite important to realize when you get a, a risk rally, uh, things tend to move uh, with some degree of dispersion in different directions, but generally in a somewhat predictable fashion, you have to have the courage to hold your position. But when things get more complex, when volatility starts to rise to some extent, uh, then it is very important to uh, have this ability to switch, to know what is the next trend and the next thing to, to load on. And this is an environment which is infinitely more complex than where we are in. People have learned from the great financial crisis to buy into risk uh, when everything seems to be uh, on the verge of destruction. And that's the easy part. The next phase is a much more complex one. And also the second point and very important one is obviously Europe is a story unto itself. Uh, implications, obvious measures taken by many governments, include, uh, including Germany, have stabilized long-term growth and is an attractive opportunity bereft of large cap growth stocks. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, an exaggeration would be to say that the rabbit is an American one and the turtle is a European one. But at the end of the day, the turtle to some extent wins. So we're still, we still like the turtle. Well, look, Sebastian, thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure to, to hear your latest insights. We look forward to welcoming you back again next week uh, for your latest macro updates. Thanks, Sebastian. So now I would like to uh, introduce our next guest, a special guest joining us all the way from the United Kingdom. Today we have with us Luke Brown, Head of Asset Allocation Asia at Manulife. Good morning, Luke. Good morning, Carlo, and to everybody online, and, and welcome from 
Manulife lockdown London office. Well, it looks it looks very cozy. It looks like uh, you're you're very well set up. So, and again, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to to share some of the views because obviously today's uh, topic, uh, particularly not just Asia but China uh, in particular, and th and that's obviously where I'd like to to begin uh, this morning's uh, uh, webinar with you. Uh, so, China uh, has been one of the first nations to to emerge from COVID nineteen. Obviously, uh, the they 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 did a radical uh, way of shutting down. Uh, what is the impact now on the economy and what is their outlook? So we can also look at the first slide and, 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 and share that with our, our viewers. Yeah, look, colleagues, it's, it's a great question. It's the right place to start. Now, I think I would echo Sebastian's comments that in order to understand the journey and an eventual destination, you know, we do want, need to look at a little bit over what has happened. Now, we know the coronavirus has caused a, a huge demand and consumption shock across the globe. This is not restricted to any individual country, economy. This is a global phenomenon. Now, we know that historically, China had, had suffered great GDP growth that was um, heavily contributed through, through private consumption expenditure. So we do need to look to see a turnaround in this. Um, equally, you know, we can see there has been a pretty violent decline in many of the key economic statistics that we should look at. Um, this gives us concern, obviously, about what the path to redemption may well be. Now, you made the very valid point that, um, you know, China and Asia is, is, is in effect the first out. They, equally, they were the first in. Now, what this gives us, I think, is a way to get ahead of what the, what the global economy might look like as it emerges from shutdowns in coronavirus. Now, a couple of the things I think we need to observe and understand. Um, China, I think, was particularly effective in managing the immediate impacts of coronavirus. So being able to very much contain and control um, introduce strict controls around economy, around travel, etc., with the support of the populace. Um, that, I think, has put them in a good place to emerge rapidly. Um, and what I do expect and, and, and what we are looking to see is an equally violent uh, recovery in consumer consumption, in the, the sort of reinstatement of supply chains to allow Asia and China specifically to emerge from this and get back onto the path that we saw before coronavirus came to bear. And, and this also brings me to, let's say, more, a more delicate question, but it's still a very pertinent question uh, for our investors is, how, how has this COVID-19 crisis impacted the perception uh, of the government? Yeah, look, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and I think, you know, again, if you look at the response of China, um, if you look at the way that the, the government was able to um, effectively control not only the economic impact, but, but also, I, th I think, the passage and, you know, commuting, if, if for want of a better word, of the virus. And, and this was something that was aggressive, it was fast, and it was effective. Um, I, you know, I, I would draw a comparison to, to other nations, and we know that, you know, there are very different approaches that can be taken, and this is, you know, societal impacts, this is the way that, um, you know, sort of different countries view their own personal freedoms. Asia, China in particular, has the ability, I think, to, to react minimally with the support of people. 
and 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 Luke, um, one we discussed this earlier when when we were obviously preparing for Morning Espresso, and I, and it would be uh, not my it would be my responsibility, of course, uh, that I have to ask you this question. Uh, many years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to live in Hong Kong uh, at the cusp of the exchange between the British government and China in 1997. It's been in the news lately, unfortunately, not for the right reasons. China, uh, uh, Hong Kong relations uh, have obviously uh, been playing out. How do you see this playing out? Uh, in consequences for investors looking to China? What are, what are the risks or, or is it just maybe a little bit, uh, you know, overblown? Yeah, look, I think, you know, clearly there is headline risk here. Um, yes, there has been, I think, a, uh, a more direct <clears throat> and an increase in intensity of the move towards, um, you know, Hong Kong really becoming part of, of China. Um, and as we know, you know, this, this has always been the intended path. This was agreed in 1997. Now, what we have to watch is, I think, the international reaction to this. And of course, as investors, we need to be concerned about what the impact might be in terms of capital flows. Now, Hong Kong is, and I believe will remain a critical um, financial hub in Asia. And I also think Hong Kong can benefit from flows coming from mainland China. So you're absolutely right that, of course, there are challenges to be faced here, and we need to recognize those, but there is always balance. Um, I also don't underestimate the fact that, you know, realistically, it is not in any economy's interests for self-harm. Um, and I'm quite sure that that is at the forefront of people's minds in, in China and, and Hong Kong. And, and of course, leading to, to another, let's say, very popular uh, question from investors is obviously, could this increase tensions with, with the US? Obviously being a, a political election year in the United States and obviously having passed uh, a trade war or continued trade war, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, it's, there are a lot of moving parts here. Um, the past 48 hours, uh, you know, the, the headline risk that we have seen and and some of the impacts on market valuations has been clear. Now, my expectation is that we are likely to see a continuation, if not an increase in intensity in some of this headline risk. You touched on what is happening in the United States. Now, I think most commentators would, would agree that, um, you know, Trump and the Republicans are putting forward, or at least starting to put forward, a very strong commitment to America first, take on the rest of the world, and China is forefront in that. Um, equally, you know, we, we have seen some of the, the decisions in Asia um, sort of lead to an increase in uncertainty um, and much more discussion, and certainly we proactively have this on the team, over what that might mean in terms of risk, volatility, dispersion in, in where we see markets moving over, over the coming days. Now, <clears throat> whilst there is this increase in uncertainty, I still anchor myself in the idea that globally we are looking for a recovery. Globally, we have concentrated action from central banks. We have the Fed who is injecting liquidity. We have fiscal stimulus, the, the like of which none of us have ever seen before. Um, also have and you know to touch on Sebastian's comments in in Europe which you know I would still argue can be somewhat fragmented you have Angela Merkel who is trying to pull the nations together and um, you still see some back and forth 
Um, and you still see negotiation behind the scenes over what debt relief actually might mean or uh, what emergency funds might be available. And contrasting that <clears throat> with Asia, uh, China in particular, and the ability um, that I think they have in having a concerted and considered effort to address this. Again, this is the balance that we have. That headline risk and escalation versus the path I think all parties want to take, which is one of returning to the growth we saw pre-crisis. And, and uh, look, uh, so what, what I think is, is very interesting is when it comes to investing in China, uh, investors are still a bit shy. They have limited knowledge. Uh, markets were closed to foreign, foreign investors for, for quite a long time, and they're just starting to open up. As a manager with local expertise, I would assume there are some competitive advantages. What would you say are the, your, your unique uh, competitive advantages of manual life as a sub-manager, uh, particularly for our Chinese strategies? Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think it would be wrong to describe China, China as a frontier market. I think that there is a good understanding of the general investment opportunity set that we see. Now, notwithstanding that, and you know, you make the point of, of being local, which to me is absolutely critical. Um, and it's being local, not just in mainland China, it's having the right financial centers. And I also believe being, you know, local more broadly across Asia. I also think that there is a heritage aspect. Just, just being on the ground doesn't necessarily give you the ability to engage at a sufficiently granular level to really understand what is going on. You know, to really look through the data and understand firsthand what the impact is going to be on companies, on profit levels, on <clears throat> dividend policy, etc. So having the heritage of having been there in Hong Kong, we've been there for over 100 years, coupled with that local experience, I believe gives us a competitive edge to tease out um, those investment allocations that you want an active manager to make. And obviously, uh, as a manager uh, of Nordea's uh, Rambimbi bond strategy, uh, I think it would be uh, great if we could also have first an outlook for Chinese fixed income. So can you give us a little bit of uh, what's happening on the ground there? And we also show a slide here uh, as well to share with our, our investors. Yeah, so look, and, and you know, I, I always try and, and talk to clients about, you know, headwinds and tailwinds that we see or positive factors challenges. I think the overarching message is that the fixed income markets in China continue to offer attractive investment opportunities. Um, China, with its ability to you know, further stimulate through monetary policy tools, which you know, if you look at their debt levels compared to the rest of the world, I think give them a lot of dry powder. Um, the impact I think that they can continue to have through fiscal stimulus um, and, and also, you know, let, let's not underestimate the, the fact that China markets become increasingly relevant on the, the sort of world uh, platform. And what that means is you are going to see increasing allocation to these assets, whether it's through indexation or whether it's through thinking about portfolio construction, the utility of, of differentiated exposures. And um, so huge tailwinds for, for what I can see for fixed income. Now, there are, of course, challenges. Um, everybody is going to be looking at the velocity of escape from the coronavirus. Um, at the moment, and you know, if I draw a comparable to, to what we've just seen out of the US with consumer spending figures 
um, outperforming all expectations. I caution that, you know, we should consider that this is something of a release of pressure. It's, it's like that pressure cooker, you take the top off, the steam comes out. It's what happens next for me. So those are the challenges we'll be looking at. And as we've already touched on, you, you know, potential escalation in political rhetoric. Um, could there be issues around trade wars? But again, balancing these, I think the attractive yields that, that we can achieve allocating to China selectively, broad-based, I think offers clearly a beta exposure that, that would have performed well over the past decade. I think the next decade will look very different to that and being selective around those allocations is going to be critical. And look, so look, looking in, in the Rambimbi mar bond market specifically, you have quite a, a lot of flexibility to invest in, in government bonds or government related bonds, so state-owned enterprises and, and corporate bonds. Uh, while being mainly invested, uh, mainly ma mainly mainland China uh, invested, the, the strategy, so Nordea's uh, Rambimbi uh, bond strategy can opportunistically also invest uh, in the Hong Kong offshore market. Uh, given what we've just heard about the macro environment, uh, where do you currently prefer to be allocated? Yeah, look, the, the flexibility that we have, of course, is very deliberate. Uh, flexibility affords opportunity. What are we trying to achieve for, for Nordea through this discretionary portfolio management? We want to have the ability to take very specific exposures to those areas which we think give the best investment opportunities. So at the moment, you know, we do like Renminbi um, as an allocation. We do like the yields that we can achieve through local currency, but also the credit spread differentials. But we balance that over the need to think about the overall risk and, and how we want to construct our portfolios. Being able to navigate your way across different parts of um, the sort of credit structure from government through ID to high yield clearly affords us a great deal of opportunity. We can avoid those sectors we don't like because we're not benchmarked in that way. And we can increase allocation to those that we believe offer the greatest chance of return. And so now, now that you've done a really nice, succinct job of explaining to our investors the fixed income side of things, I'd like to switch gears and look at the Chinese equity side of things. As, as always, I'd like to remind our investors that you manage for us uh, the Chinese equity strategy. Um, equities are quite uh, a, a good, attractive uh, uh, space in particularly Chinese equities, I would say, because they represent, so we have a lot of companies around the world, but they're actually underrepresented, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the China equity and, and what, what are the uniqueness uh, around them? Yeah, and look, you, you've touched on a couple of the key issues there and, you, you know, very similar to my comments over bonds. If you just look here at the, the sort of global um, GDP contribution, okay, um, and critically of its growth, and then you relate that to the current allocation in sort of benchmark indices. Now, what this tells me is that China has a material underrepresentation in benchmark strategies. Now, <clears throat> we've already seen an opening up of some of these benchmarks and, the, and an inclusion of China equities and indeed China fixed income. I expect that to continue. If that continues, then we will see increased demand for those Chinese equities. So that's the sort of indexation piece that's going to cause a natural demand in and of itself. But I think. If we look structurally at Chinese equities and, and you know, trying to consider, do they offer us a valuable and differentiated investment proposition relative to the US developed markets, Europe? 
Well, my answer has to be yes. And my reasoning for that is notwithstanding the headwinds that we see, um, and I would include that issues around technology, um, <clears throat> the mere fact that China is such an important growth engine, that they do have a diversified base of underlying equities, of sectors, of industries that can be selected from. And on both the relative and absolute basis to, to other countries, I believe that the growth prospects for these companies and for China um, outweighs those headwinds. Now, I would also then, again, put it in the context of portfolio construction. Think of the utility that you can have. Does China equities within an equity allocation offer you better diversification benefits? Potentially so. Um, the return drivers, and particularly in actively managed portfolios, can be selected and can be differentiated to those that you might see from active strategies based on US or developed markets. And, and so also looking at, at, the, at the next slide, and you kind of already alluded to this, but I think it's still a, a good uh, technical, let's say, question for those that are less exposed uh, to Chinese equities. You know, with A-shares A uh, becoming uh, an investable part uh, of the universe in the past few, few years and, and being allocated uh, to big EMM market indices, investors now have access, as you said, to, to a broader uh, investment market than before. Of course, lack of knowledge of this market still is a little bit of a hindrance. What, what role can Chinese equities play? in a portfolio from a diversification perspective? I know you already alluded to that, but maybe uh, a little, a little uh, takeaway on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and clearly there is much more that we can talk about on this. Um, I, I know we don't have all morning, but I could happily go on for you. Um, an interesting takeaway, I think, from this slide, let, let's look at pre-financial crisis, post-financial crisis. Okay, and we have broken these data sets up for you. So pre-financial crisis, demonstrable outperformance by China. What, what was the catalyst for this? What were the reasons behind it? Clearly the outsized growth, the opening up of markets, that was a place that you wanted to be. Post-financial crisis, we, we have seen a glut of liquidity, rates low forever perhaps, but certainly for longer. And beta to me has been the play. S&P 500 demonstrably outperformed. So what does the next decade look like? I would argue that, that where we are, <clears throat> you are likely to see much greater dispersion in performance from different markets, different underlying. This is that opportunity set in terms of diversification. Which markets are likely to offer you the best potential growth? Think about you know, the macro side, where is that powder dry? As I've already commented, China, I would argue, has much greater, um, certainly monetary and indeed fiscal stimulus powder dry than perhaps the rest of the world. If that's the case, and if you can selectively choose, so actively into those um, particular uh, companies or sectors that are kind of perform best in that environment, I think you've got a nice mix of specific risk to drive returns, but also diversification um, when thought about in an overall portfolio construct. And I'm also, Luke, I'm really pleased that we have some client questions coming in. And I think this is a very relevant one uh, that hopefully is not too tricky to answer. But uh, it's true uh, that in uh, recent days, uh, we've heard about uh, new outbreaks uh, emerging uh, in Beijing uh, with the closure of some of the neighborhoods. Uh, are you or your managers concerned uh, that this could uh, affect the recovery in China? Yeah, like, 
great question. Um, this topic came up this morning on my morning uh, call with the team. Now, two things I would observe. First of all, the response has been swift. One would hope it will prove to be effective. And again, this goes to the ability of uh, the China regime to be able to address these issues. The second is, we talk about headline risk and uncertainty. The reaction of markets to not only the outbreak uh, that we've seen in China, but look also at the numbers that came out of the US, of Florida, for example, has been somewhat muted. Now, my expectation is that because of the message that we are getting, which is we are opening economies, we understand the risks, but it's balanced against some positive news flow in terms of medical treatments, the forward-looking outlook, the balance to me remains constructive to risk. I do expect greater dispersion in returns. We've seen some extraordinary moves again in, in equity markets. Um, I expect that dispersion to continue, but remain constructive and watch with interest. Let's see where the headline risk evolves. And perhaps one, one more final question before we go to the key takeaways. Another client question is, in, in which sectors will, will China's development policies focus on in the, in the coming future, in the coming years, actually, rather? Uh, yeah, look, uh, <laughs> a very good question. Um, I do expect China can, to continue on the path that they have been already. Um, we know that they are going to look to improve infrastructure. We know that the spending is going to be focused on those areas where China believe that they have um, a particular edge. Now, the, the only caution I would have is that we have to see how the geopolitical landscape evolves and also the impact of potential nearshoring. We know that, obviously, you know, the, the sort of outsourcing of manufacturing into China has help control price increases across the globe, arguably has, has led to very suppressed levels of inflation and has led to this huge manufacturing boost onshoring China. Should we go to this coming out of the United States in particular, then that is likely to have an impact and might require China to pivot on both its government but also private sector investments. So again, having that ability to observe, understand, project forward, and then react to your positioning is, is gonna be the way to go. Great, thank you, Luke. So now let's uh, go on to the key takeaways from this uh, morning session. So uh, just one moment for the slide to come up. Great, so again, for, for our viewers, uh, today's session obviously has been uh, dedicated on Chinese uh, fixed income and equities. Uh, we want to remind our viewers, obviously China is one of the first nations to emerge from the COVID-19 and is showing obviously uh, signs of recovery, very important for obviously uh, for potential investors looking at this very attractive asset class. Uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese fixed income is a fast-growing asset class, uh, potential diversification benefits. Of course, we all uh, know that the, there's the search for yield out there is, is quite uh, uh, hot as always. Chinese equities is underrepresented in global indices and offers attractive investment opportunities. I think that's a very key takeaway uh, for portfolios uh, that need a little bit of that diversification and obviously uh, looking at a very uh, big market uh, that is maybe underutilized in, in a lot of portfolios. Uh, obviously, we have a, a good manager in, in Manulife with a strong track record, both in Chinese equity and fixed income uh, with strategies with a local uh, presence and heritage, uh, and which, which Luke uh, 
uh, alluded to uh, earlier. And finally, uh, advocate of active management. Of course, uh, we always want, you know, you guys uh, are trusting us to manage your uh, uh, savings. So of course, active management for us is very important. Uh, and that's, we're very glad to also work uh, with, with Manulife on, on these strategies. So would you say that's a, a fair uh, takeaway for today's session, uh, Luke? I think you've done a sterling job there. Well, thanks again so much, Luke, for, for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on Morning Espresso. And thank you, Sebastian uh, Galli, as well, for your macro insights. Uh, as always, you can find more information on Nordea.lu on our Stay Alert website, where you can find more information on products that we can help you navigate uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, in addition, uh, next week's uh, special guest will be Juliana Hanvinson, who is the portfolio manager of our uh, Nordea Emerging Stars equity strategy uh, with the ESG twist. So you'll hopefully will join us for another uh, exciting uh, edition of Morning Espresso. Until next time, thank you so much for joining us. Be well and be safe.